everyone, John Clare here. Welcome to the Milestone 20th EvoFi Podcast, a finance podcast for humans. Today's episode focuses on protecting your family from financial loss if something were to happen to you. I think that sounds more interesting than saying this podcast is on life insurance, don't you think? Now, I know what you're thinking. Here I am listening to this podcast on a commute to work, while I'm working out, or just to relax. Do I really need to spend that time listening to a podcast on life insurance and annuities? But let's face it, we all need to know the basics about this stuff, just to make sure we have what we need in place today in case something should happen tomorrow. What better way to do that than on a financial podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously? We're lucky to have Mark Maurer, President and CEO of LLIS, leading life insurance and annuity experts in the fee-only financial advisory space. Mark assumed the reins of LLIS in 2012 after nine years of learning the family business. And as you'll see, He's a pretty down-to-earth guy, and we had a great time recording the podcast with him. In addition to chatting about all the new innovations in the insurance arena, I also learned a few interesting things about Mark that can help me in my pop culture and personal life. One, I'm not the only person on the planet that hasn't seen Game of Thrones. Two, Mark is a big Poison fan. And three, I now have a new word in my vocabulary automagically. More on that a little bit later. Representing the EvoFi team today is myself, John Clare, Mariami Pierce, and Cecilia Fleming. If you're not already a subscriber to this podcast, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Check us out on Twitter or Instagram at EvoFi Podcast, or drop the podcast a line at EvoFiPodcast at gmail.com. As always, we'd love to hear from you. As a reminder, this podcast is 100% free of any tax, legal, or investment advice. Our goal here is education and a little fun. If you need advice in any of the areas mentioned, tailored to your specific circumstances, feel free to give us a call and we'll see how we can help. Now let's get to the podcast. Here's the EvoFi team talking with Mark Maurer. Enjoy. So the first thing that actually, why don't we give a maybe give our listeners a little bit of a back a little bit of background on on uh, your firm and kind of what you guys do overall, and then we'll go from there. Okay, sure. So we've been uh, working with fee only financial advisors for over twenty years in the area of insurance, and it's something that fee only advisors know their clients need but don't do themselves. Uh, but sort of like referring a, a client to an attorney to help draw up wills, you all may know a little bit of what the client needs, but not the actual details and nitty gritty. And so that's where we come in as a partner with fee-only advisors to help with life insurance, disability insurance, long-term care insurance, and annuities. Okay, great. So we, we've got the right guest book for the right topic. You covered all the areas that we wanted to talk about today, so that's great. Perfect. Great. It's almost like I knew ahead of time. That's right. Gosh, <laughs> we should start doing outlines in advance. Um, so we've kind of affectionately titled this uh, segment the Everything You Never Wanted to Know About Life and Annuities, But Really Ought to. And I think that's probably a good topic because a lot of the folks right. that we talk to um, kind of feel that way, but as financial planners by day, we know how important um, – all these tools can be to clients. So again, very lucky to have you here. Okay, here we go. So I'm sure you've listened to our podcast before. Uh, and if you haven't, we have a little segment up front called the Evo five, yep. which is uh, just like to learn a little bit more about our guests and a little bit informal way before we talk about the specific uh, detailed topic. So um, we're going to start off with uh, number one, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Okay, I've, I've thought about this a lot, and the job I would like is, you know how when you go to Home Depot, you can buy the grill, uh -huh. or if you pay an extra $50, it comes assembled? Uh -huh. 
I want to be the guy in the back of the Home Depot who puts the grills together. So you want to be a grill builder. <laughs> That's, you know, whatever somebody needs, if it's patio furniture, if it's whatever, where there's a kit and instructions on how to put something together and, and it gets done, I think that would be a cool job. So, Why is that? I don't know. I think I, think I like the, um, the fact that you can start something and finish something and see the final product. Okay. I see. You know, so much like with financial planning, you're working with clients for years and years and years. And even when you think you get to a goal, there's another goal. So, you know, it's such a long term thing. Mm-hmm. I kind of like the, the finality of I put that grill together. It's done and it's off. You don't live near an Ikea factory or store, do you, by the way? <laughs> there, there is one in Tampa, okay. but uh, th- this is this is my uh, maybe semi-retirement job. I don't. I don't think it pays the bills as as well as as it. I think it should. I don't know. In a service economy, with all these people ordering online, you know, delivery and assembly business, that might be in your future. We'll see. Okay. Well, that's good. You definitely get uh, get the award for the most creative uh, alternate profession. I'm gonna, I'm gonna remember <laughs> that one. Uh, so, what is your favorite word, Mark? Okay, my favorite word is auto magically. You prepared so for not, this. It's but, not automatically, <laughs> and it's not magically. It's automagically. And so that's what Dave, RIT guy, tells me anytime I have questions about things. He says it just happens automagically. <laughs> that's good. Is that, uh, does that mean that he just handles it automagically? It, it means then he'll also then, t- if I ask further questions, he'll tell me, and, and then I think my eyes glaze over because I have no idea what he's, so he's just decided to tell me automatically. <laughs> I love it. What would you do differently if you knew no one would judge you? Okay, that would be sing, <laughs> because, you know, I think I sing really well. Uh-huh. Um, there's nothing like hearing me do uh, poisons. Uh, every rose has its thorn <laughs> at, at loud volume. I think I sound pretty good. Uh, I'm sure you do. You want to try it? Uh, no, no, <laughs> because that's that's why it's my answer to number three. Because then you all would judge me. And, that's fair enough. Touche. And it would. <laughs> so that's that's what I think. I I was thinking about maybe dance because that's that's just rough. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of like Elaine from Seinfeld. Nobody uh, needs to see that. Dancing, <laughs> but uh, now I go with sing. Okay, awesome. So, name a greatest of all time. It doesn't have to be business. It could be anywhere. But who comes to mind as one of those people that you would you would uh, love to to be able to beat one day, or if you could in the past? Um, to be able to meet one day, th- this was a really hard one because it, it's so so wide open. Um, I think Willie Nelson would be somebody really cool to meet. Um, be fun as just what it, it should be fun you may not remember a lot of mm-hmm. it but it should be a lot of fun and uh, he's done so many things it, it was such a broad category it was hard for me to to nail somebody down again i think you know we've gotten like bobby Orr and fdr and <laughs> now we can add willie nelson to the list is that That's, someone you've always looked up to uh, i don't know if i'd say looked up to but i've i've always liked his music and okay. just thought he's, he's had an interesting life yeah. i wouldn't say i looked up to like you know i've uh, aspired to be willie nelson right um but <laughs> i just i just but i would be pretty cool too but maybe <laughs> not who wouldn't want to be willie so <laughs> this is the name that tune uh, section which we like to have a little fun with uh, kind of the theme of the podcast uh we've got a song we'll give you a few seconds to name it now um I've got two choices for you. I'm going to go with okay. uh, classic or pop culture-ish. So I'm going to let you pick, and then uh, we'll go from there. I would love to say I'm classy enough to do classic, that I would be able to recognize multiple you know, different classical songs. Um, so I'm going to have to go with pop. Oh, <laughs> I think you just sealed your fate, but uh, we'll go with it. So let's see if you remember this, and then I'll tell you what the classic. Now, it was classic, not classic coal, uh, but we'll go with this. So here we go. I'm going to play it over. Oh. You'll hear it over the speakers, and then I'll, we'll go okay. from there. Here we go.
Any 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 idea? I would say if it doesn't come immediately, you're probably not going to get it. You yeah. may remember back when we talked talked about a month ago, you said, as long as it's not this, I'm good. Anybody here? I'm looking at Cecilia Mirami. Anything? I mean, let's, let's help It sounded Mark like out. the Pirates of the Caribbean theme Close, song. Close, but not. Mirami? That was my guess. Mark, all the... Uh, um, millennials and uh, what do they call them? Um, what the guys with the beards? Uh, what are they? Hipsters. Called? Hipsters. Yeah, <laughs> oh hipsters. Thank you. They're all just rolling over right now. That is the theme from Game of Thrones. Uh, I don't watch that. Uh, okay. Now, Mark, I'm gonna just just because you're a lot of fun, I'm gonna do the other one. Okay. Here we go. Okay. If if Dave was here, he'd be rolling his eyes. He'd be like, "Let's get to the topic, but let's let's have a little fun with this." Here we go. Simon and Garfunkel. You got it. Well done, Mark. I figure this is a great, uh, great song for this because I think that's really what insurance is all about. Game of Thrones, I'm not really sure, other than you know, lots of insurance companies fighting for business. But um, are, are you also trying to just age me and, and have people be able to figure out <laughs> my age there too? Well, you and me both because I've never heard that song before, but apparently that show is pretty popular. And between you and I, uh, there's two of us that are holding out. I've heard that, that that people like it. Yeah. I heard there was, yeah, a couple couple seasons and things like that. My kids are too young to watch it, so we don't watch it in our house. But, And I'm looking across the table. You guys aren't into Game of Thrones either. Nah. All right. <laughs> Anyhow, you're a good sport, Mark. Thanks very much for that. I think uh, everybody knows a lot about you. Um, we've got cool words. You like poison, uh, and uh, and you're not a hipster. <laughs> so, so uh, having said all that, let's talk about insurance. Um, I'd like to talk about life insurance first, and you know, uh, you know, recognizing that the people who are who are listening are not industry professionals; they're just regular folks who are trying to, you know, get through the day and do their job. And so, I thought we'd try and hit on just you know the basics of you know why should people care about life insurance? What is it? And then maybe some of the you know kind of what is it used for and um, what are some of the options that you see out there? And um, in our profession, we see a lot of things that are done incorrectly. So maybe we can touch on some of that stuff too. So, and then we'll do the same for annuities, which is a big uh, topic uh, as well. So, life insurance. So, tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of obviously what the product is, uh, what it's generally used for, uh, and some basics that people should know about when they're either told by their advisor they need to look at insurance or, or they have policies and they're trying to evaluate them. Okay. So at least for us and I think for almost all of the, the financial advisors we work with, life insurance is, is about protection. And so if, some, if, if there's a financial loss at someone's death, then a life insurance policy can, can fill in that, that void. Uh, a lot of times, as you mentioned, things maybe that you see otherwise for life insurance, it's often sold as an investment. Um, you know, there's other aspects to life insurance that can be uh, beneficial to the policy. But first and foremost, it's about if I passed away, if someone passed away, is there a financial loss to someone? A lot of what we look at for life insurance is term life insurance. And so term life insurance is, is what I call sort of a pure insurance. It's like our, our homeowner's insurance, our auto insurance. I pay my premiums every year. And if I were to pass away, my family gets X amount of, of death benefit or life insurance. There's no cash values. There's nothing variable about it. But it's fairly straightforward like those, those other types of life insurance. And normally, it's designed for income replacement. So in my working years, I'm going to have life insurance, hopefully to my retirement age, in the right amount that if I were to pass away, my family would receive some life insurance, which would essentially 
be able to replace the future years of lost income that I expect to have today. Do you also find that in addition to kind of uh, offsetting any potential lost income or savings on that income, is paying off debt, paying off the mortgage, paying off other things, are those um, still you know, important factors for folks to consider as well? I mean, obviously people can always sell the house, but reducing their liabilities should one of their loved ones die, is that something that should factor in as well? Oh, ab- absolutely. And, and there's two sort of different thoughts of, of how you figure out how much life insurance. And one is to take a look at someone's debts, um, maybe what they expect to pay for college in a few years, and you sort of take these different pieces and come up with an amount of life insurance. I tend to be a little more simplistic to say everything that we want to do should be based on our income. So paying off the mortgage, I should be able to do with my mortgage. Paying for college, I should be able to do with my income. So yes, you end up sort of getting to the same place depending on how you you factor it in. I tend to look at it more on income because I think that's sometimes easier for people to think about this life insurance. I'm going to work another 20 years. So this amount of life insurance is about 20 years of lost income. But you're absolutely right. That's what somebody may be able to pay off the mortgage with the life the life insurance. Okay. And do that sort of thing. Okay. And what about you mentioned um, term life insurance, uh, which is you know pure life insurance, typically the least expensive for that period of time. What are some kind of general kind of comments on the other types of life insurance out there and where you might see those applying as opposed to term? Sure. The so term insurance is. And part of the name is a term, so it's defined as a term or length of time. It'll last 20 years, 30 years, even some term companies have a 35 or 40 year term policy. But they're really not designed to last as long as we might last. So it's great to, in case I died early or to before age 65, there's this life insurance but then it generally stops. So any sort of permanent life insurance would be whole life, universal life, are designed, let's say I need life insurance for some reason, as long as I live, not just the next 20 or 30 years. And there's some situations, so you may have um, estate planning. So someone may have uh, three kids, two of them are in the family business and one isn't. And at death, they want to, the parents want to make sure they treat the kids equally. Two kids get 50% of the business and one gets life insurance or other assets. Um, Estate tax planning, which under current rules is much less of a big deal than it was a few years ago. But estate taxes aren't due until death or, or second death for spouses. You can't cover that with a term if you want to make sure that it's there at death. Uh, a, a third example is, is planning for special needs children. Uh, many times parents are caring for special needs kids who may not have a, that, a significantly shortened life expectancy. And so the parents want to make sure that, that life insurance is there to uh, fund a special needs trust or you know, be able to have money for a sibling to care for the special needs child because it's something that parents do for free and they may do it through their 80s, but at some point you have to pay. You'll need to be able to pay somebody to do that. So from what I, if folks are listening, it's, it seems like permanent life insurance is more the exception than the rule. Generally speaking, if you're trying to insure one's life, there are specialized scenarios where permanent insurance could be helpful, but, you know, I don't want to say nine out of ten times, but the majority of times, um, the simpler the better. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? I, I would agree. Okay. Um, the, the term insurance may be just fine for 80% of people. And the goal is that I had the insurance in case something happened to me before I got to retirement age. When I get to retirement, I should be financially independent. Nobody's re- relying on my income anymore. There's, there's not then a, a financial loss if I die mm-hmm. once I've retired potentially. And so then term took care of what we needed. Okay. So what are what are some of the things out there, you know, in our world we call them riders. Are there certain product nuances that people should be aware of or words that people should understand 
um, you know, that are add-ons to just typical term life insurance, some that are maybe important and some that are kind of things that people don't need? Anything come to mind? Sure, sure. So it, I think an important thing to look at on a term policy is making sure that it's a called a guaranteed level term. So that means if it's a 20-year level term policy, the premium is exactly the same for the next 20 years. One thing that I think term policy should have is called a conversion right or a conversion option that says, if I decide to or things change in life, I can trade my term policy for a permanent policy. So let's say that 20 years or 30 year time horizon doesn't work. I can trade my term policy for a permanent policy without having to go through underwriting. So where would that so, apply? Like, can you give me an example? I mean, I get those notifications all the time, these conversion um, options. So what situation would that make sense to do? So a good example is someone I had this earlier this week. Um, they've had their term policy for 20 years. The husband is not in good health today. They're expecting somewhere between a five and 10 year life expectancy. And so with the term policy, it has this level premium for 20 years. But if you keep it as term, the premiums jump every year and goes into this annually increasing. But they need, would like to keep some of that life insurance going, but he's uninsurable, can't apply for a new policy today. So it's a, a way for him to actually, he was issued at super preferred mm -hmm. 20 years ago today because of health, he's uninsurable to trade that term policy for a super preferred so universal life policy based on his now current age, I think it was 70. Mm -hmm. And so you can trade that term for that permit to make sure that life insurance keeps going. Is that typically expensive to add a rider like that? That's a great question. I would say 80% of companies that's just included in their term policy. Okay. Um, another 10%, they would have a rider that extends that maybe three or four percent uh to the premium and then another 10 percent of companies are going to have a shortened uh, conversion period so you may have a 20-year term but you can only convert for the first 10 years i'm not a fan of those because most of the time you wouldn't say let's sure let's start paying four thousand dollars a year instead of my six hundred dollars a year when i still have 10 years left on my term policy but when you get to the end of it, if things have changed and you want to convert now in 20 years, you don't have that option anymore. So when you convert, though, the, the premiums will change. Is that correct? It's not yes. that you get a reduced face amount, but it's permanent. The premiums will jump, likely, uh, and the coverage will go down. Is that right? The, the, the coverage stays the same. So if I had a half-million-dollar 20-year term that I bought when I was 40, Mm-hmm. 20 years later, I can convert it to a half million dollar permanent coverage mm -hmm. policy. It still keeps my super preferred, but it's based on a male age 60 super preferred. So, so as if I was in good health and could buy that policy today, it would be the same premium. Okay. So that's a pretty big permanent policy. So it's not like you're buying a reduced permanent policy. You're actually buying an equivalent permanent policy at, at a much higher premium. But nonetheless, uh, you retain that amount of coverage. And, and you have the option to convert less than, okay. than the full amount. Okay. So, yes, you, you wouldn't have to convert the full amount. But that's, so that's a great planning tool um, and something we don't encounter very much. Uh, but that's, I'm glad that, uh, that we brought that up. It's a nice safety net to yeah. have just in case somebody can't get coverage later on. Yeah. Okay, so what? So that's a, that's a that's a rider or a f uh, feature that that I think is worth considering. Are there others that come to mind? Um, another one that I see somewhat regularly that I'm not a, a big uh, proponent of is the waiver of premium rider on a term policy. That one tends to add uh, twenty to thirty percent to premium sometime, and it's just waiving a term. A term premium. So usually, when you're paying four or five hundred dollars a year for a term policy, to add sixty or seventy dollars a year, just in case I wasn't able to pay that premium because I'm disabled, I think a traditional disability policy, or if someone has group disability coverage, it's much. It's a much more efficient policy option than that that waiver of premium rider. Okay. 
And I haven't seen that that much. I actually didn't know you could get it on a life policy. Um, because to your point, if you've got disability income insurance, um, it may be more advantageous to go that route. Right. Okay. And, and like I said, especially on term policies where many times it's 40 or $50 a month. Yeah. If, if I'm in bad shape, you know, that's, that's something that hopefully even still you can come up with that much to keep the life insurance going. Okay. So what age would you suggest people start looking into term coverages or is there one that you suggest, but one that's different from the norm? <laughs> um, the, the silly answer is while you're still healthy, <laughs> um, the answer is, but, but we don't know when that is. So I, I think to me, it comes back to when, when does somebody have a financial loss if something were to happen to you? So just taking me as an example, um, when my wife and I first got married, we were both working. We didn't have a, we didn't have a mortgage yet. We rented an apartment. So we could say that there's very little, you know, we didn't have anything that was necessarily dependent on either of our, both of our incomes to make things work. Um, she probably would have, you know, something would happen to me. She probably would have traded up and gone, wow, what did I ever see in Mark? Um, but we she would have been upset. So luckily she didn't know any better. Um, <laughs> So, but once you start having debts, uh, so I think uh, mortgages where it's shared, I think as soon as you're thinking about children or have children, it, the needle moves exponentially um, because now there's people who are relying on you for the next 20 years where pre-kids and just a, you know, and just an apartment that you're renting, there's not necessarily a huge, huge loss. Okay. Now, on the flip side of that, is there an age where maybe you're too, I'll use the word seasoned, to get life insurance? <laughs> she learns well, doesn't she? Uh, too seasoned. Uh, usually for, for term insurance, and again, term insurance is usually for something that has a short period of time. So you don't often see people in their 70s or 75 getting term insurance for income replacement. But you can still get it if you say, whoops, now we have an estate tax issue usually into your 80s is when some companies stop offering life insurance usually by age 85 most don't um but again sort then the idea is what is what is the need um you may say i have a mortgage and it'd be nice if i had the life insurance but we also have other assets so it's not necessarily that big of a deal getting the insurance when you're 72 may not be cost-wise effective. And did if I you answer your question? It did. Thank you. Okay. And if you're using life insurance for estate planning purposes, I mean, you're really, or estate tax purposes, you've got a pretty massive estate these days. Is it over mm-hmm. 22 million or so? Isn't that at Mary, least the federal, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So I want to get to annuities here and time is going really fast, Mark, but I want to ask you on, um, uh, on the life insurance side, are there, I know one of the services you all provide is you will review um, existing policies and, and kind of give feedback on whether, you know, the policy is, I don't want to say good or bad, but, you know, is, is, is a good fit uh, for the client. What are some of the things that you see out there kind of, um, you know, you know, common issues, I should say, on policies maybe that you review that might be helpful for folks to know about? On, on annuities? Oh, unless on life insurance or first. All. Yeah. Okay, life insurance. Okay. Um, I think life insurance, a lot of times it's, the somebody has permanent life insurance when really the need is is term um and that's for many reasons uh, it can show to have cash values it may have been presented as there's life insurance but there's an investment component to this um, i'm a much bigger believer of, of having the term insurance and having financial advisors there to help manage the rest of the whatever you would be paying in permanent insurance into maxing out your qualified plans or paying down student loan debt. Um, all the other things that, that many times the, the permanent insurance is, is funneling $1,000 a month of premiums when really term could be $100 a month and that $900 a month could be spent, I think, towards goals that you all would rather have them be working on. So if I'm a, if I'm a young professional, and we've seen this a lot, 
who has, you know, buddy buddies who are in the insurance business and they bought a couple whole life policies when they're like 25 and they're like you said dropping a thousand dollars a month into this policy but they have no term coverage uh, and they're way underinsured um and i know we're not giving advice on this podcast we're just talking educating but you know what is your uh, what are your thoughts for that person should they consider uh, surrendering the whole the permanent policy uh and replacing it should they keep it since they're you know, they've already got the policy and simply add term insurance. Is there a kind of a rule of thumb there that that you'd want to share? No, oh, that's that's really tricky. Uh, and part of that is very client specific. Um, some people, believe it or not, want to have some permanent insurance. And at being second generation insurance myself, I have some permanent life insurance because I, I want to be able to leave it to my kids. But the majority of what I have is is term. Mm-hmm. Um, so there may be a case for, you know, in our example, there's three whole life policies to rework it that maybe the oldest whole life policy is in better shape than the other two. So you keep one of those, surrender the newer two to free up that premium and add term on top. So it doesn't always have to be an, an all term or, or, you know, we're all permanent. I think having that sometimes that mix of sort of what I have in my situation, a little bit of permanent because I have it, it's already there. And then using the term for the majority um, can be a good, a good fit for some clients. Okay. Okay. Well, so that was a good primer on life insurance. I've got a bunch more questions in my head, but I'm going to save them to the end. Uh, because okay. I want to really get to annuities, and and Mark, we'll give you a chance at the end if there's something you want to bring up in either area that that we can talk about. So uh, again, that was a good primer. So let's move on to annuities, and specifically, at least I'd like to focus or at least acknowledge that there are different types of annuities. And Mark, as an insurance person, you'll probably cringe for how simple how simplified I'd make this. But in my head, I you know you think of fixed annuities, you think of immediate annuities, and you think of variable annuities. Um, and, you know, I think we're going to scope out fixed and income annuities or fixed and immediate annuities uh, for now, uh, because typically what we see are around variable annuities. Um, so I'd like to, if it's okay with you, kind of start there. And, and, and if we find ourselves in a fixed or immediate annuity area, then we can get there. But um, so for, for the person who's listening, variable annuities, they typically have, a, I would say, a negative connotation. Um, but can you describe them at a very high level and maybe talk about what they were designed for versus maybe what they're used for typically, if that's a fair question? Sure. I'll, I'll see what I can do. And, and if um, you want to steer me one way or the other or have me answer a different question than okay. what I'm answering, just let me know. Okay, awesome. Um, so in a big picture, an annuity is issued by an insurance company and it's you pay premiums to the insurance company and they hold that money and in the world of variable annuities which came out i think in the 70s or 80s you give your premiums to the insurance company and then you have an option of mutual fund look-alike sub accounts that you can put them into and i always think that's funny because they're not actually mutual funds they're a specific it's basically a clone of a mutual fund that's being able to help be held inside a variable annuity. And so the client then can pick and allocate within maybe 30 different sub account options where they want their premium dollars to be allocated. And it can be as, as volatile and you know, higher potential uh, return or more conservative. A lot of insurance companies then will have a few models where you can just pick a, a moderate or conservative allocation. And so the money sits there. The, the reason that, that people do this is because the money grows tax deferred. Now, it doesn't go grow tax free, which I think some people think, but it grows tax deferred. When at some point you want to take your money out of the annuity, you take your earnings out first so if you start taking money out of the annuity it's gains out first and it's taxed as ordinary income when you start taking it out 
Um, so it doesn't have capital gains treatment, it's, it's ordinary income treatment. If you never take money out of the annuity, then when you, the insured, the owner passes away, then the annuity values transfer to your beneficiaries. If it goes to a spouse, the spouse can keep it on as their own and keep the tax deferral. There's no step up in basis, though. There's no step up in basis. Yes, exactly. And mm -hmm. so let's, in this case, the spouse or somebody leaves it to a non-spouse beneficiary. You're exactly right. And I think people don't necessarily know that either. There's no step up in basis. And so the beneficiaries then have to recognize the ordinary income on all the gains in that annuity then. They can take it out there, out over their lifetimes, or out over five years. But at that point, that's why it's tax deferred, where life insurance is truly tax free. At death, all of the life insurance proceeds pass tax free, and annuity it's tax deferred. Okay, so let's let's talk about. So I think folks probably get the general gist of an annuity now. So let's cut to a real world example that we see all the time. So I, you know, I've worked in a company. I've got a big four hundred one k. And now I don't work there anymore, uh, and I'm being pitched a variable annuity as a way to roll over that money. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, obviously tax deferral, you would get tax deferral simply by moving your 401k to an IRA. Um, so you're going to get that tax deferral regardless, but there is a value potentially in moving to a, a, a variable annuity um, because of some of the guarantees that, that are touted for some of these products. Um, are there things that come to mind that folks would want to consider um, when considering uh, IRAs versus annuities um, for creating kind of retirement uh, income or, or a means to support their retirement? I know there's a loaded sure. question, by the way. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Ready, go. That's a whole, that's a whole you have two minutes. minutes there by itself. I know. I'm sorry. But um, some, of the, some of the reasons that variable annuities are are presented as a good reason for doing exactly what you mentioned, moving your 401k there is one, many times they come with a, a death benefit. And so that would say, uh, the basic one says, um, if you die, your beneficiaries will receive the greater of the account value or the money you put in. So let's say you never took any money out of it and you happen to pass away in a down market. Your beneficiaries would get the amount that transferred in, not what the current cash value is. So that's one option that sometimes is presented as a, a reason to do that. Okay. The other one that's become fairly popular in the last few years are the called a guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit. And this is another rider you can add to a variable annuity. And it says you can withdraw 5% basically get a check every year of 5% of the account value for as long as you live, even if you have a down market and you use up all of the actual assets in the policy, you'll still get that 5%, which was calculated at $60,000 a year for as long as you live. Um, and that one sounds pretty good too. The trade-off for those is there are costs associated for all of those. Usually a variable annuity with the guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit rider, maybe we even add the that return of premium death benefit rider, sometimes can be anywhere from two or three percent a year. Um, just for having the annuity that doesn't include the fund, the sub-account expenses either. So that's the, the trade-off. And like with most things, there's once you add some of those insurance components, the benefit of you know, not running out of money and things like that, there's going to be those fees yeah. attached to it. Well, I think there's something very appealing about the word guarantee and, and not running out of money and uh, some predictability around how much you can take out. Um, but I, I often find that you know they're, they're used as accumulation tools, but uh, not so much as you know income uh, tools. I think a lot of people that we deal with have those features on their products but didn't know about them or didn't know how to use them. Are there – do you have any um, kind of anecdotal kind of thoughts on usage of, of those products? I mean, are people – the folks that you deal with, are people actually using them for income? 
I'm sure they are because they were well educated probably by you guys. But I mean, uh, what, what do you see out there? What do you see that other people are doing and how are they using these products? Obviously, as a fee only NAPFA advisors, um, we, we have kind of strong opinions about them and uh, see them as tools, um, but not always, you know, they're not one size fits all. What is your kind of general experience with these products? Um, my general experience is that a lot of times people are are putting their annual IRA contributions into them. Mm-hmm. And there's the fees just accumulating over time. If they don't have the guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit rider, if they don't have a death benefit rider, there's still some expenses to the annuity. And really, you're, you're duplicating the... Um, you're paying for the tax deferral, which an IRA gives you anyway, and you have maybe 30 to 40 sub-account options instead of pretty much unlimited that you could have in an, in an IRA. Um, once you add those lifetime withdrawal benefit riders, it tends to be a lot of expenses. And as you mentioned, we find a lot of times that somebody says, well, I don't plan on using this for income. Mm-hmm but they've been paying 2% every year for the last 10 years for a rider that's designed to be income. So I think we run into the, there's so many options and riders that it can be not necessarily well understood what somebody has, where many times an IRA, especially managed by a fee-only advisor, is going to potentially provide much, much higher benefits to the client and, and lower costs. So if my associate Dave O'Brien were here right now, he, he would say after the next question that I'm going to ask you, he say, John, that's like uh, annuities 301 or 401, and that's for a different podcast. But Mark, you can, certainly, you can certainly defer if I ask you this question. But one thing that comes up as we evaluate annuities a lot, uh, you mentioned a couple different buckets. One is like there's the initial premium that may be helpful in a death benefit situation. There's the account value which is how much your money has grown or decreased based on the sub-accounts or the you know, quasi-mutual funds that they're invested in. But then there's this third bucket. There may be fourth and fifth, too. I'm not sure. But there's this fourth bucket or third bucket. Sorry, my phone is ringing there. We'll have to edit that out. But oh, we just lost Mark. Mark, you still there? I'm still here. Okay, cool. I'm going to have to note. Uh, can you put a note down at 4122? Uh, it must have been my wife calling. Um, didn't she know that I was recording a podcast? But anyhow, <laughs> uh, anyhow, um, let me regain where I was. Um, oh, yeah. So a third bucket called the benefit base. And a lot of folks who buy annuities, uh, you know, they're, they, they talk about, oh, I've got, you know, whatever, 6% guarantee for the next couple of years. And, you know, we try to explain to them that's on the benefit base. Can you comment a little bit about, you know, what that other bucket of money is and how it works uh, and, you know, how that may pay out in a death situation versus an income situation versus a surrender situation. I think that's a misunderstood area that people often think, um, well, they assume that it's cash. Right. And you're absolutely right. That's probably the number one misconception we see or hear where the client says it's guaranteed to grow at 5%. Something is but not necessarily what they think it is. So let's, for sake of argument, say client puts $100,000 into an annuity. It grows to $150,000 of actual cash value. And let's say that's 5%. But the benefit base has growing at, been growing at 6%. So that grows to 170000 And if my numbers are making you all cringe because I'm not you know, very accurate <laughs> We're with good. those, I, I thought that was fair. Yeah. Um, so you have these these two numbers, and so that benefit base was growing at six percent, got to one hundred and seventy thousand. That's the number that that lifetime withdrawal benefit number is based on. So the lifetime withdrawal benefit base usually says it's something like five percent of the benefit base is what you can receive. So in this example, the cash value did grow, but it didn't grow as fast as that. So if the client wanted to cash the annuity in, they would get $150,000. They'd get the actual value. Only if they wanted income does that $170,000 come into any play, and that's what the income is based off. So when it says we'll pay you 5% a year, it's 5% of the 170. 
So in a down market, those things are very attractive because let's say it's a down market. The client has $80,000 cash value, but may have a $170,000 benefit base. Taking income on that $170,000 a year looks really good for the last four, five, six years, however long they've been, everything's been growing a little bit. Everybody's benefit base is pretty close to their actual cash value anyway. So that that benefit base really isn't in the money. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have a lot of value, but but if when we see a any sort of correction or, or flattening off where that benefit base keeps growing at 6%, but actual cash values and the market isn't growing, that 170 might keep growing where that 150 may stay flat or, or go down. So I think that's a great, you know, that's a great, uh, you know, uh, explanation of why why people may buy these products with these riders is because of protection in the down market if they're trying to preserve income and withdrawals. So th the question that I have then is, okay, let's say we do have a down market um, over the next couple of years and, you know, account values go way down, but the benefit base sticks around and my withdrawals are consistent. Um, what kind of reserves? I mean, the insurance company, somebody's on the hook for this benefit base. I mean, if I'm a layperson and I'm wondering kind of, well, who's got the insurance company's back? I mean, you know, if we had a really bad downturn, like is the insurance company going to go out of business? Uh, are there reserves? I mean, in general, can you comment on kind of what's supporting that benefit base in a really negative market? Sure. So, so as you mentioned, reserves is a good word. So all of that, those uh, mortality and expenses that, that are charged by the annuity, the cost for that annuity, that might be 1%. That's coming from the insurance company, and, and as you said, they're exactly what they're doing. They're putting it in a reserve bucket to be able to offset that. They may be um, purchasing some options out there just in case to hedge against that. But that's what those extra fees are going into into a bucket to make sure that claims are able to be or the, that money's able to be paid over over time. And you know, a lot of times people aren't exercising these until their retirement age mm -hmm. and 5% is, you know, times 20 equals a hundred percent. So you almost have 20 years of that 5% till where, you know, there may be any sort of, um, you know, where the, you might say it's in, you know, in the yeah. red for the insurance company. Um, you know, it's not 10% yeah. because that would be, that would be a little too good. Yeah. Well, I'm sure the actuaries are really smart people, uh, and uh, they've figured out a way to somehow hedge the risk and make sure the insurance company still makes money, too. Yep. Mark, you said most people don't begin withdrawing from their annuity until their retirement age. The age is 59 and a half, correct, when you can begin withdrawing? So you can you can take money out of your, your annuity at any time you want, but prior to age 59 and a half, you'll pay a 10% IRS tax penalty on anything above that okay that's my that was going to be my question okay yes yes so once once after that then you can take it out and it's the earnings earnings out first but but there's no no penalties to it okay um so i can't believe time is going so fast and I, i've tried to cram annuities into you know 20 minutes but mark i want to talk a little bit about long-term care just to as a little bit of a cliffhanger for hopefully what will be our next podcast uh, together but before we do that and leave annuities 101 are there some tips out there uh, for folks out there on annuities as they're considering them as a tool, things that you've seen or, or would recommend to folks that they be aware of? Um, you know, I, I think for anybody who's, who's working with you and has an annuity, uh, you know, you're, you're able to contact us to get uh, a bird's eye view of the annuity, what benefits it has, what the expenses are. Many times it's really just evaluating what it has, where it is, um, you know, are the expenses normal for, for where it is today, and you know, seeing if there's, there's other, other options out there. Like I said, sometimes with just you know, an annuity, in, a qualified annuity or an annuity inside of an IRA that doesn't have any of the bells and whistles, they may be paying 2% and that annuity isn't really giving them anything so a, a traditional ira may be a better fit yeah okay and i think that's what we would recommend doing a cost benefit analysis on the product and what the people's needs are and i think um 
that's obviously what we do in our day job uh, as well. So, right, and, uh, and and yeah, it's all about the needs. If if the need is income and they have a rider, it may be a perfect fit for them. So so many times, what they have is is a good fit for them. A lot of times, what we see is folks will have multiple annuities and they're not taking distributions on any of them. Uh, but they've got a lot of these riders on there, and, and I would suggest that those are situations that should be evaluated on whether, you know, that is the right product for them. But that's a different podcast. Um, <laughs> all right, Mark, so to be respectful of your time as well, I'm going to lob a uh, – I probably can't say lob a hand grenade out there, but I'm going to lob one out there on um, – um, one of our office associates likes to use that term a lot. So I guess it's rubbed off. We can edit that out if we need to. But <laughs> long-term care. So let's presume that folks listening know what long-term care insurance is. And that's a whole podcast or series of podcasts by itself. Um, but one thing I've heard recently a lot about is using life insurance uh, as long-term care coverage with um, different products or hybrid products out there. Um, is that something that you can comment on and uh, kind of just give our listeners a little bit of an overview on some of the new things that are ch- in the in the long-term care insurance space? Sure, I, I can do that really quickly. So, so a traditional long-term care policy is is going to have level annual premiums and it's designed to pay for for as long as you you live. And what it will do is reimburse you for any expenses you have for care in an assisted living facility, adult daycare facility, home health care, or nursing home, if you qualify as needing long-term care, which is the inability to do two of the six activities of daily living, such as eating, toileting, transferring, bathing, dressing, eating. Did I say eating already? Yes. That's six. (laughs) I, I, I get five really well every time. I can never remember a six. And Condiments? I think my five that I can remember just cycle every fun. time. No, you said that already. That toilet, toileting and continence, are they separate or are they different? Are they the same? No, that's the same. Transferring. Transferring, eating. Transferring. Getting dressed. Uh, bathing. Yeah. Okay. Bathing. I think we've covered them all. Uh, we'll we'll <laughs> fact check that later. That's got it. Somewhere in there okay. I think we got them all. Um, or you need assistance, hands-on or standby assistance because of dementia or Alzheimer's, something like that. So once you qualify for as meeting those triggers, which basically are set by the IRS so that these benefits are not taxed to you, then the policies reimburse you for care that you receive on any given day or, or in a month. With traditional long-term care policies, they've been around since the 70s and as almost anything new, they weren't necessarily priced very competitively. Um, they were underpriced. Mm-hmm. As compared to when I got married, my five best friends all went in on a wedding gift and got me a single disc DVD player. So just in the opposite, that's that's what it came with. That was that was the wedding present. Wow, a DVD player. <laughs> I think now they're like thirty dollars on Amazon. Yeah. And, yeah. And, have Bluetooth or have a Blu-ray and all kinds of stuff attached to it. So long-term care was the opposite. It was not, they didn't know exactly how it was going to be priced. So we've seen over time, people have rate increases. And, and so that's something that people don't like, which is where these hybrid life insurance policies have, have been introduced because they do have guaranteed premiums. So it tends to be a very small amount of life insurance, but you add a long-term care benefit onto it that can look just like a traditional long-term care policy. Usually they're designed for a short pay. So rather than $4,000 a year for as long as I need it, it may be 10 or $12,000 a year, but only for 10 years. So there's, there's some nuances there, some trade-offs, but at the end of the day, that's a policy that won't have rate increases, won't have premiums come back, and can make it look just like a traditional long-term care policy. So so for someone who's looking for, and who's not looking for level premiums, I mean, I guess I'd be looking for decreasing premiums, but that doesn't exist. So, so if you're looking for level premiums, I mean, it would say that, yes, a hybrid or a long uh, life insurance with long-term care is very appealing. But I'm guessing that doesn't come without um, some catches, meaning they're probably more expensive. Is that correct? 
Right. So, so if if we were to look at uh, stand similar benefits between a hybrid life policy and a, and a traditional long-term care policy, and like I said, that's hard because the hybrids are usually a short pay, traditional long-term care is a level pay. Um, a traditional long-term care policy is going to have the the lower premium for benefit over time, so have the highest IRR. But the nice thing about the hybrid annuity is then we or hybrid life or hybrid annuities, we know exactly what the premiums are going to be, and it adds this built-in feature of, but if I don't use it, somebody will get something out of it. So if I don't ever need it for long-term care, my spouse or my kids get this death benefit from it. And I think that's very appealing for folks that, you know, we come across as you're paying money for a policy that you may, hopefully you never need. So having some sort of a predictability and the ability to give some of that premium to a beneficiary can be appealing. Right. And, and I, I don't, it's, it's a lot of insurance companies have over the last 10 years, we've seen insurance companies get out of the traditional long-term care market, but more have come out with the hybrid, uh, hybrid policies. And I think just by combining the two policies together, you're, you're blending a little bit of stability in the, in the pricing and the expenses of, of knowing what the long-term care premiums are, but also having almost hundreds of years of life insurance pricing ability, when you can blend the two together, I think it's a little more stable for the insurance companies. And do you, so it's great for the insurance companies. What about for the consumers or the policyholders? Do you find that, uh, obviously I think we've talked about the, the benefits maybe of looking at them, but is there a trend? Are people actually buying these new policies? Or are they sticking with the more traditional policies in your experience? From, from what we see, um, we see more and more people asking about the hybrids mm -hmm. but sometimes it does still does come down to a, a cost consideration if someone can do the ten thousand dollars a year for again just making numbers up mm -hmm. ten thousand dollars a year for ten years knowing that the premiums aren't going to change they're paid up in ten years then I'm done with it if I never need it then my kids or my spouse gets this you know hundred maybe hundred twenty thousand dollars of life insurance all of that sounds great but not everybody can write the $10,000 check for 10 years. So maybe for a couple, a traditional policy is three or $4,000 a year for both of them. And that may be a better, a better fit. So, so this, I think this is probably a great way to end. So just to wrap that up, you mentioned before kind of a, I don't, I don't know if you said shorter term, but a, which means it's like a, we would say it's a 10 pay or it's not a payment for life, but it could be paid up after a certain period of time in this example of 10 years. Is that, is that another consideration to think about while you have high income or the ability to make larger payments for a short period of time? I, I could almost do, I'll do, I'll try to make this as short as possible because yeah. that's a great, great question. Um, it's almost like you, you fed that one or I fed that one to you earlier, but, um, I think the hybrids are very attractive for that reason. Um, and I always say that the re people start thinking about long-term care somewhere in their mid fifties. And it's for two reasons. One is we're less, we're, we're more concerned about, we're looking at retirement and saying, okay, I've got some assets built up. I'm more concerned about probably distribution or using them up than I was at 40 when I'm just trying to pay off debt and, and hopefully get some assets. The other thing that happens at age 55 is that's when people start, I think long-term care becomes real because they may have to care for mom and dad or their aunt or uncle is having to go into a facility or you know, their cousin is, is caring for their aunt and uncle somebody's in their 30s and their parents are in their 50s or 60s, it's a thing way out there. Um, so somewhere in those 50s, that's when I think it becomes real for people. And you're absolutely right. That's a great time for the hybrids to say, you're in your highest income earning years. While you've got income up coming in, let's see if we can get this paid off in the next 10 years while you have income coming in so that when you get to retirement, there isn't this ongoing premium expense. Are premiums to hybrid products tax deductible as a medical expense, like long-term care premiums are? Do you know? That's almost a whole nother half of a <laughs> half of a segment, and and there's different answers to it that. Depends. So if if you have me back on, we'll see you if we it. can 
deal with a little bit of that. That sounds like a deal. That sounds like you, you're, you'd like to come back, so we'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> only, only if I get to answer the, the Evo 5 again. We'll put Different. some poison on there for you, and we'll be good to go. Oh, I can, I can name that. No, no, no. That, that's too easy. Well, Mark, at the next NAPFA conference, we're going to karaoke bar, I think. <laughs> Are you sure you want that? Hmm. <laughs> Mark Maurer of LLIS, thanks very much for joining us. Thank we really you. appreciate it. Well, thank you all. It was a lot of fun. Um, for those who are on the on the line, just don't forget to, to, to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can check us out on Twitter or Instagram at Evo5Podcast. So, again, um, Mark Maurer, thanks very much, and uh, we'll, we hope to see everyone again soon. Thanks very much. Thank you all. Okay. Thank you.